Welcome to this throwback edition of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, where we remember the past and choose to repeat it. Today's episode was originally published on October 16th, 2019, and I wanted to play it now because it goes along nicely with a couple of recent topics we've covered. We looked at the ongoing debate about whether overpopulation is an environmental problem for the world, or if it's more appropriate to focus on consumption. And we also just looked at the process of building a circular economy as a strategy for reaching global sustainability. So today, I wanted to share the mental health benefits of changing how our economy works by demonstrating that our current system is making people miserable. Sources include the Weekly Economics Podcast, Off Kilter, the Tom Hartman Program, Novara Media, This Is Hell, The Majority Report, and a TED Talk by Johan Hari. Some people are saying that we found ourselves in a mental health epidemic these days. Would you say that the reasons behind that are being adequately discussed? No, basically. I mean, I think there's a lot of um, conversation happening about the best ways to treat mental health so I, or, or to, to cope with having a mental health problem. So Time to, to Talk initiative, for example, like it's great. Like people should be talking more about their mental health. Reaching out is a good way to get help. What I don't think we're talking enough about are the causes behind a lot of mental health problems. And I think the reason for that is possibly because to do so means looking at a lot of stuff that's wrong with the structure of society generally. Like it makes mm. the conversation much more difficult to have. But I think until we start having that conversation, we're not really going to see the back of any mental health epidemic anytime soon. Mm. So at the moment, you say that we're having the wrong conversation, so we're focusing too much on kind of, yeah, dealing with it rather than the root causes. Mm -hmm. So in a kind of nutshell, what do you think are some of the root causes? Is it to do with the way that we work, the way that we live? Where Where's the kind of the core of this? I mean, in a nutshell, capitalism. <laughs> um, I mean, to sort of deepen the answer a bit, I mean, if you look at the way that the world of work is changing, for example, 20, 30 years ago, it was quite common to sort of walk into a job, know that it was a fairly secure job, that you were going to be there for a very long period of time unless you chose otherwise. You would probably be protected by a trade union recognition agreement, even if you weren't actively involved in trade unions themselves. And fast forward now to today, growing numbers of people are experiencing zero hours contracts. Even those who are on permanent um, employment contracts and apparently are sort of safe are not. Like not many people stay in work for a very long time. There's a growing threat to rights at work. It's not surprising to me that that has a detrimental effect on the mental health of a lot of workers. How is anyone meant to feel secure in mm. themselves when there's no security at work, which is where we spend most of our lives? Mm. So we're going to carry on doing a bit of a deep dive into that later. But for now, a shocking figure from the UK Council of Psychotherapists said that rates of severe anxiety and depression in unemployed people rose over 50% between 2013 and 2017. So following on from what you were just saying, Becky, Annie, how has the government's austerity program uh, affected our mental health? What role does that play in all of this? Um, a significant role. So, you know, the points that Becky was just making about work and about insecurity at work also just go for insecurity in other aspects of your life. So countries that have higher levels of unemployment, but a good, solid, unstigmatized welfare system where people know that they have security to put food on the table, even if they're out of work, that 
protects people from the negative well-being impacts of of unemployment. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, yeah, austerity has been a, a massive issue. I would like to say, though, that a lot of the automatic ways we might think about poor mental health being a response to economic problems is right at the bottom. So it's really easy to say, yeah, poverty and all the various forms of poverty are clearly um, drivers of mental health. But actually, it's the whole economic system which is driving poor mental health. So more unequal countries, more economically mm-hmm. unequal countries are seeing worse outcomes in terms of mental health for people across the population. And that's really worth thinking about for a second. So say um, if you're uh, on a, a steady income, you've got a secure job and um, things are going relatively well for you, you're more likely to experience depression or anxiety if you are living in a society that is more unequal, even if you've had exactly the same amount of money and security. Mm-hmm. It's the whole, it's our whole kind of political economy, if you like, the whole kind of economy that we live in um, with extreme and very corrosive levels of inequality. And often sort of behind that is a sort of sense of status anxiety, mm-hmm. a sense of, yeah, I guess we, we start getting into sort of the, the crux of neoliberalism, right? Like mm-hmm. individ- very individualised, constantly trying to make it to the top. And that mm-hmm. that's that affects everyone, even if it affects the people who are struggling the most, the worst. Mm-hmm. We all lose out really in that kind of economic system. So it's like that, uh, the book, the spirit level or the movie. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It's all about how if, yeah, as you say, wherever you are positioned in society, because we're always having to strive for more, like even if it's not materially, uh, we're constantly feeling like unsatisfied and, and precarious in some way. Right? Exactly. Is that right? Yeah. yeah, exactly. And a lot of the evidence also comes for physical health, which is obviously closely related, but it's kind of harder to dismiss when people are literally dying decades younger. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you, you, this is not people's, you know, being overly sensitive about diagnosing their own anxiety. This is very physical reactions to the kind of society that we're living in. And it's interesting that life expectancy has stalled since 2011. Mm. Um, and, And that's astonishing, really, in one of the richest countries in the world. I mean, I'm not a a psychiatrist, but um, I would definitely bet that there are um, a significant number of people that have developed mental illness um, in a way that could have been prevented. Um, There's there's some cases where that's just not the case, but um, but because of sort of the work culture that we've created that does not allow time does does not or maybe even sometimes on paper allows time, but not within the culture allows the time and the space to make sure you really are taking care of both your physical and mental health. It's also it's not it's not even just to pile on and agree violently with what you both are saying. It's it's not just that workplaces are not. Um, uh, necessarily supportive in the way that matches their values and their stated commitments. But, and you're talking about the culture as well, but there's also this just incredibly intense fear. And I'm saying this in part from my own personal experience. Um, uh, when it comes to the prospect of, of, of volunteering that you might actually be facing these kinds of challenges, um, because there's such a pressure to be superhuman. There's such a pressure to be perfect, even, uh, 
uh, when you are um, uh, what anyone might understand would be crumbling under the weight of a great deal of pressure and stress. Um, and I'm, I'm again saying this from personal experience. Depression has been new to me. Anxiety has been new to me. All related to um, that this you know burnout phenomenon that we're talking about. Um, but in a way where I will be the first to say I am terrified to say that to the people that I work with, let alone the people I work for. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm somebody who cares about and works on these issues. Mm-hmm. And I think that um, it's it's one of those uh, situations where um, I think we have this this culture, like you said, that that makes you feel like you have to do it all. But I think part of what's inherent about that, and we talk about this a lot when we look at um, disability, is is how how that then affects on the other side, right? So how many people are doing everything they can and taking on as much as they can to fit some ideal that we've determined is is worthy um, that then finds themselves in a situation where maybe they no longer can work. And sometimes this is burnout. Sometimes it's, yeah. you know, you gave the example before about somebody who's worked so hard and thrown their back out to then your entire worth is is washed away by this idea that now you cannot work in a work for pay um, producing kind of way that then then you go from like this superhuman idea to feeling like you're worth nothing on top of everything else because of how much of our self-worth we attach to being able to produce. Um, and so, yeah, when we talk about things like burnout, we're, we're really talking about at least in our culture, people's self-esteem, people's self-worth, um, the amount that people think they're able to bring to the table. And then, and then when when the culture or the employer or even ourselves pushes us to a level where we are no longer healthy because of that, um, then blames that person, right, um, for where they have landed and what they now have to do to try to get themselves back. And, and, and on top of what they might be feeling about themselves, we've then, as a culture, then decided, oh, well, you, you have to take SSI, you're, uh, you're a moocher or you're, you know, and so it's just like, it's a sort of damned if you do, damned if you don't kind of thing, right? Um, where if you try to take that time, I, I know we have even this culture now, um, with a lot of the startup culture where it's like on limited vacation and things like that. But if you actually take your vacation, then you're not committed to your job, right? So it's just like, it's, it's, um, it, it really is, there's, there's what is almost this no vacation winning. of which yeah. you speak. I'm so curious. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> we, we should add it to the term we defined up top, Aza. An amazing concept. I'd really like to know. You know, when I run for president, it will be on the platform that all adults get summer break. Just, you know, throwing that out there. 2020 is not too soon, Valerie Novak, which I said your last name, and I'm about to Twitter tag you so everyone can follow you so you can become Twitter famous enough that your presidential campaign can be uh, self-financed. We got to get 65,000 signatures. 65,000 donations. go. I think I could do that on the promise of summer vacation for adults. Valerie's handle is at madtastically. That's correct, because of language that we just talked about before. Now you know. Now you know. Um, Yeah. I appreciate so much how you connected all those dots. And I just want to say I'm getting emotional listening to you because of how much it all resonates with me. Um, so just thank you for, mm-hmm. for giving um, voice to a lot of things that I think a lot of people might be listening to right now and hearing and going, boy, does that speak to me? And no one's ever actually said that in those terms. Yeah. I mean, and how many people are, how many really great people are we losing um, either in the workforce or on this earth um, because we can't acknowledge maybe the worth of work that isn't 70 hours a week 
right? Or um, that isn't paid labor. The amount of people who volunteer time, the little time that they have to do some of this work, that is discounted. Um, and I know that because I've been that person trying to do the good work and landing myself in the hospital because because I could not take that toxic stress anymore. Um, and I am still here, but barely sometimes, right? Um, and And it's one of those situations where an hour or two later, I wouldn't have been, right? Um, and I mean, not to say that I'm some fantastic, great person, but um, but I am a person that that is willing to do this work that maybe would not have been here um, if things had gone the way I planned them uh, because of some of those structures, right? And so I think I think it is something that we need to talk about um, in a way that really is uplifting people. That says what you're able to offer is enough, and I take it. Um, and then also helping those people who maybe need to. Um, within themselves, relearn values um, that say you're more than your output. And if I may jump in, I think one of the ways that we need to really be thinking about this is is grounded in an anti-oppression analysis, because what this is, the prevalence of burnout is an indictment of capitalism. And the fact that we see this so often in progressive movement spaces in particular is also an indictment of even within our movements, the constant replication of the very structures that we are trying to fight against. We are not valued based on our wage labor output. We know that that is inherently oppressive. We know that if you are black and you are experiencing burnout, you are going to be substantially less likely to be able to take time off, even if you're in an institution that supports that because of the ways in which we have very racialized and gendered expectations of how people can manage and push through things like burnout. We know the expectations on black women to be strong and to be able to bear these Herculean burdens will play into the degrees to which we experience burnout and ultimately the degrees to which we are pushed to a place where we can't handle it anymore. And I think the incredibly high, devastatingly high rates of suicide, of self-harm, of all of these indications that the systems are structurally failing us point to why our analysis needs to be intersectional and needs to be explicit in naming what these structures of white supremacy and capitalism and ableism, which we know depend upon one another and build upon one another, are doing to our mental and emotional well-being. Megan Day, writing over a Jacobin magazine, is quoting from a new study that was published in Psychology, Psychological Bulletin, written by Thomas, or the study was done by Thomas Curran and Andrew Hill. And what this study found, this is absolutely fascinating. This is, again, Psychological Bulletin was the publication. They're looking at, at behavioral and psychological changes in the American population. And these changes are most pronounced among people, you know, under 50, basically, and, and, you know, down into the, into the millennials, uh, in particular. But, but it, it stretches right across the United States. And what they're finding is that perfectionism is on the rise. Now, what is perfectionism? Uh, perfectionism comes in three forms. There's self-oriented perfectionism. I want to be perfect. There's other-oriented perfectionism. I want my 
wife, my husband, my employee, my employer, my neighbor, my friend, to be perfect. And then there's socially prescribed perfectionism, which is where the entire culture starts basically harassing us all to be perfect. They define this social, self-oriented perfectionism. They say all three types are on the rise. And this is a bad thing. This is causing an increase in suicides, an increase in anxiety, an increase in all kinds of problems. Um, in fact, they, they write, uh, unsurprisingly, societies governed by these values make people very judgmental and very anxious about being judged. It describes the feeling of paranoia and anxiety engendered by the persistent sensation that everyone is waiting for you to make a mistake so they can write you off forever. This hyper-perception of others' impossible expectations, writes Megan Day, causes social alienation, neurotic self-examination, feelings of shame and unworthiness, and a sense of self overwhelmed by pathological worry and a fear of negative social evaluation characterized by a focus on deficiencies, and sensitive to criticism and failure. Do you find yourself criticizing yourself as you go through the day? Oh, he shouldn't have said that. Oh, my God, I can't believe I did that. That's what we're talking about here. And people born in the United States, the United Kingdom, and Canada after 1989, these are you know younger people, scored much higher than previous generations for all three kinds of perfectionism. And that scores increased linearly over time. The socially prescribed perfectionism has doubled, 100% increase. Young people's feeling of, uh, in other words, young people's feeling of being judged harshly by their peers and the broader culture is intensifying with every passing year. So why would this be happening? Well, it turns out that this is the result of neoliberalism, which you could also call Reaganism or Thatcherism. Both the United States and the United Kingdom have been badly infected by this. And Germany, to some extent, this is the this is part of the battle that's going on right now in the conservative base in Germany. The, the, the German conservatives are neoliberals. And it's just, you know, but that's a whole nother conversation. So what they you know, what they write about is neoliberal ideology. You know, what is neoliberalism? Neoliberalism is the belief that markets, you know, the, the, the looking at markets and, and noting, as as Milton Friedman pointed out years and years ago, Millions of decisions are made every second in marketplaces. And therefore, Friedman suggested, marketplaces are perfect because they're like crowdsourced. Well, it's BS because marketplaces are actually created by both government and companies and manipulated by both government and companies. But nonetheless, uh, neoliberalism is the ideology that what works for markets should work for politics and should work in, in our social lives. So... Uh, as Megan Day writes in, in Jacobin, uh, neoliberal ideology reveres competition, discourages cooperation. See, prior to Reagan, we had a we society from, from the New Deal in 1933 all the way up to 1981. It was a we society. We were strengthening Social Security. We were strengthening Medicare and Medicaid. We were building you know, free college education all over the country. Um, we, we were all in this together. Post-Reagan, it's the me society, me, 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 me. And it's the atomizing, breaking up, shattering society and, and the standards of society of the we society, of the I'm my brother's keeper, as one of our callers talked about yesterday. That's all, that's, you know, neoliberalism destroys that. Reaganism and Thatcherism destroys that. 
So back to the back to the article. Neoliberal ideology reveres competition, discourages cooperation, promotes ambition and ties personal worth to professional achievement. You're only as good as how much money you make or how high you climb in the status uh, hierarchy in your workplace. Unsurprisingly, societies governed by these values make people very judgmental and very anxious about being judged. And I, you know, I think that the judgmentalism of, of Donald Trump is a great example of this. And the, the, the solution, by the way, to this, they say young people today are less interested in engaging in group activities for fun. Instead, they're putting all their efforts into achievement. The respect for peers is conditional on how good they are. Uh, this has produced an epidemic of serious mental illness. Perfectionism is highly correlated with anxiety, eating disorders, dis- depression, and even suicidal thoughts. So how do we fix this? We repudiate neoliberalism. We say Reaganism was a huge mistake. The, this greed is good mentality, this, this me, me, me. Let's just reverse that and go back to building a we society. Of course, that's going to require getting the billionaires and their money out of politics. We're running a special discount on memberships this month. Sign up now at bestoftheleft.com slash support to lock in that discount for as long as you keep your membership and enjoy ad-free versions of the show going forward. But until then... One of the, the, the questions to ask then about that, that bullshit jobs yeah. book, which I think is, you know, was a runaway success. It was, um, fairly and, well. <laughs> and, and I think, like, I, you know, there was a while, I think, where I just, it was absolutely everywhere because it struck such, I think, a chord with so many people. And, and you know, I mean, like, uh, maybe, maybe you can just give the listeners a kind of abbreviated oh, thesis. Of- right. The basic argument is this is something I gradually discovered over time that a very, very large percentage of workers in pretty much all wealthy countries, um, are personally convinced that either they're doing absolutely nothing all day or that if their jobs didn't exist, um, it would make no difference whatsoever or the world might be a slightly better place. Uh, and, and my hypothesis, what if they're right? You know, I mean, we kind of knew that, although we don't like to talk about it, but it strikes me that who would know better? You know, I mean, um, if, if you have a job that seems useless, but it actually in the big picture, it actually is sacks helpful to the organization in some way. What's the chance after 10 years? No one's going to tell you that. Right. On the other hand, if you're writing reports that like nobody's ever going to read, that's the kind of thing they probably won't tell you. Yeah. Right. So, so if you ask people, you're probably going to get a low estimate. But according to a lot of surveys, um, they did one, YouGov did one, they discovered 37% of workers in this country were convinced their jobs made no difference at all. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's an amazingly high figure. I thought so, too. I um, thought it was going to be 15. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, it, it, it does strike, it struck me when I was reading, I, was, I, I remember my, 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 fir- the, my first job. First proper job, like after after school, before university, I was like not convinced I was going to university at the time, which yeah, but didn't work out that way. But anyway, I like I I took a, a a job through an agency at this kind of artifact of of an old kind of uh, communicative regime, right? Which is a a uh, uh, a weekly newspaper which was just advertising mm. right just kind of classified advertising like various lines uh, and and by that point they were already in trouble right because this this stuff uh, started to to, to to lose profitability uh pretty you know pretty pretty early on uh and what was interesting is they had brought 
me on through an agency as an agency worker to kind of work at spreadsheets to 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 develop timesheets for people in their kind of cool branch to see how you know that they would fill in and then it would aggregate into a report and i remember sitting there and and you know so, so it felt it was essentially like a surveillance job right and which you know I, I which was great because i was terrible at it so so it was probably an act of sabotage but i remember feeling this sense of kind of not only like driving ennui and sort of disgust but but this sort of like depressive futility and, and thinking like what does this do and, and i wonder is is that particular to to this kind of say post sort of 70s kind of post breton woods post neoliberal it's gotten much worse i mean i think there's this had always been the case and there's always people who felt their jobs you know you can go back to bartleby the scrivener yeah, or something yeah. like that <laughs> you know um and but I think it's gotten worse and worse and worse. And in one way, I think of, uh, of it is back in the 30s, during the Depression, they first coined the phrase technological unemployment. I think it was Keynes, mm-hmm. actually. Yeah. Um, you know, they said, well, maybe technological advance is actually driving unemployment, and this is the real reason for our problems. And um, and a lot of people point to that and say, oh, look, you know, I mean, now we're freaking out about robots replacing our jobs, but people have been saying this for 100 years. Mm. So, so one answer to this is, well, what if actually robots – did replace our jobs. And because if you look at the jobs people had in the 1930s, most of them are gone. You know, you have very few farmers compared to then. You have very few industrial line workers. You have some jobs you know, are, are still there and some jobs you have more of. Um, but, but, you know, in terms of those kind of jobs, they're largely gone or pared back. Service has stayed about the same. So they haven't been replaced by service jobs. That's the myth. Uh, but if it, you know, people were actually like pouring coffee for a living or maybe they're now less domestic servants and more people and baristas, but there's still the same number of people pouring coffee for a living. Services are about 20%. So, so what's actually happened is you have this enormous increase of clerical, administrative, and supervisory jobs. Um, and, and that just keeps going up. In some places, it's gone from like 20% to 70% of work. Um, so, so you could make the argument that the robots have taken our jobs, but instead of just like giving us some time off and saying, okay, you can all work four hour days now, we've just made up these dummy jobs so we can think we're still working because we're all so obsessed with the idea that somebody might be getting something for nothing or not working as hard as they could be that we're just collectively torturing each other, you know, for no reason. And, and I think that is part of it. There's a theology of work that we've internalized whereby, you know, suffering is your sort of, legitimate work is almost a secular hair shirt which gives you the justification for your consumer pleasures you know and and that's what happens when they got rid of the labor theory of value which everybody seemed to accept in the 19th century that you know work is what creates the world and we get our meaning from life by what we make and um there was a huge war against that in the very early years of corporate capitalism. Guys like Andrew Carnegie and the other Robert Barons directly realized we need a cultural change, and they tried to engineer one. We're largely successful. Um, so once you take away that idea that you should get your meaning in life from work and say, well, okay, you get your meaning in your life from consumption, then what is it that justifies work? Because you still want people to work. Um, so work becomes, you know, this this form of suffering. But we've gotten to this extraordinarily perverse stage where anything which makes the work more pleasant therefore lowers its value. And it's actually quite true. Economists have confirmed this, actually, in many cases, that generally speaking, with a few well-vaunted exceptions like doctors and pilots and stuff, uh, the, the more your work helps other people, the more useful your work, the less you're likely to get paid and vice versa. Um, 
So, but people actually think that's okay because anything that makes the work more enjoyable, including just knowing that you're actually helping people and doing something nice for the world, actually means you suffer less and therefore you should be paid less. I, I mean, it's, it's striking, you know, just, just thinking back to, to, to that kind of first job. I mean, obviously from, from, from my perspective, that, that, that job was, was nonsense, right? Like, I mean, you know, but you're being paid for that quandary, you know, when you're sitting there saying, what's the point? That existential dread is what you're getting paid for. you write about pretending to work to appease a jealous boss. There may not even yeah. be an actual boss breathing down one's neck. In fact, usually <laughs> there isn't. But ultimately, the need to play a game of make-believe, not of one's own making, a game that exists only as a form of power imposed on you, is inherently demoralizing. It's no wonder yeah. the soul cries out. It is a direct assault on everything that makes us human. How is yeah. doing meaningless work an assault on everything that makes us human? Uh, well, this is very interesting because it has to do with the one sense of self. And a long time ago, I'd heard this expression that just kind of resonated with me. Sometimes you just hear these things and you say, oh, that's really interesting. I need to look into that someday. Someday I'm going to do something with that. You know, at least I do that. Um, and I'd heard this phrase, the pleasure of being a cause. Because, you know, so many philosophers and so many cynical people, you know, just assume that, that we desire power. Human beings want power over others. You know, we're all in a necessary state of competition. Sometimes they think we just like power, like Nietzsche does, or um, you know, or sometimes they say, "Well, we want power to guarantee our access to gratification, food, sex, whatever it is we want." But um, there's an assumption that people wish for power, and 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 actually, an interesting alternative explanation is the one that. That it's just pleasurable to be the cause of things. It's not like you want to have power over others. You want to know that you caused stuff. You want to know, you say, look, that changed and it was me who did that. And, and that's really the underlying urge, which then gets perverted into all these forms of power and dominance. And that urge in itself is, is perfectly innocent and, and, and quite a nice thing. And there's a guy named Carl Gross. I'm not really sure how to pronounce the German word spelled G-R-O-O-S, uh, but Gruss, Gruss, Gruss. Anyway, um, he actually did psychological experiments where he discovered that children get their first sense of themselves as autonomous beings, independent of the world around it, when they realize that they can do things that have predictable effects on the outside world. So, like, maybe you're an infant, you move your arm, and you knock something over. Um, say, oh, that's interesting. Uh, and then you do it again, and the same thing happens. You realize, oh, that's an object, and I'm me, and I can, and if I, you know, manipulate me in the right way, I can have an effect on it. And they just get really happy. It's going to be documented. They just like laugh with just pure pleasure. And, this is great. I can knock over a pen as much as I want. And this is like the sort of formative moment when you realize that you're actually a being. You exist. It's not when you stare in the mirror. It's, Lacan is wrong, according to Gross. Um, it's it's when you realize that you can have effects on the world, and that kind of happy delight, you know, that that feeling of this is so cool, I can affect things, sort of underlies your sense of yourself as a person and and your sense of being in the world. So what I was suggesting is if you take that away, then and and 
people have done experiments with that. Okay, kid figures out that he can knock something over predictably, and he's really happy. What happens if we change it so it doesn't work? You know, and they always set up these evil scenarios. And in fact, kids totally freak. You know, they go from being totally intensely delighted to confusion, rage, and then almost catatonia. They withdraw from the world. So what I'm suggesting is what's happening in a in a BS job um, is is analogous. And there's also an element of play. This is kind of interesting. Um, it's just a lot of play is based on that. Um, why we enjoy play is, is our ability to sort of create a world, a make-believe world, um, is, is the ultimate extension of that, you know, ability to be a cause and be separate from the world and also affect it. Um, and the happiness it brings. But so all these make-believe worlds we create are extensions of that. But this is the opposite. This is a make-believe world you didn't create that's being imposed on you, where you have to pretend that you're doing something, but you're not. So it's a complete inversion of everything he was talking about. So in that sense, you know, if yourself and your sense of self and your joy in being a self is based on your ability to predictably have an effect, positive effect on the, on the world as you grow up to care affects others positively as well, um, then being forced into an imaginary situation where you're pretending to work but actually you're not against your will is the ultimate assault on that sense of self. You write that asserting oneself creatively or politically against pointless employment might be considered a form of spiritual warfare. What do you mean by spiritual warfare? How could challenging meaningless work and BS jobs be seen as a kind of spiritual violence? Well, so exactly in that sense. If your sense of self and, and, and being in the world is based on that, that is the human spirit in a way. That, that, that chuckling child who managed to knock something over and can do it regularly is your soul. Uh, um, this is your sense of what you are in the world. And any attack on that is an attack on the basis of your existence. You know, this is a struggle for spiritual survival in a certain way. Um, at least so could, could be so, so imagined. Uh, and, and, I wanted to put it in these strong terms, partly because I want people to feel that they're not crazy, essentially. Because what we're taught is that we're a bunch of people who are essentially all a bunch of lazy scroungers. Um, this is economic theory. This assumes this automatically. Everybody wants um, to put out the minimum effort to get the maximum reward. You know, so invest the minimum resources and, and effort. Your own efforts are part of those resources to get the maximum out of it, profit. And that's what motivates all human beings to do everything. And it's rational and it's good. And, you know, they actually like that. People should, people are like that. People should be like that. Uh, and if that were true, of course, if suddenly I get a job where I'm being paid a professional level salary to answer two phone calls a day um, and otherwise just look busy, I would be delighted, right? You know, I'm getting something for nothing. I have almost no effort whatsoever and and major rewards. So the rational economic actor should be pleased as punch, but the rational economic actor isn't pleased as punch. He's sitting there saying, why am I so upset? <laughs> you know, why is this driving me crazy? And, and it's a real moral confusion results because you feel, okay, I'm being made into a, I'm a parasite, but I don't want to be a parasite. I'm being forced to be a parasite. I'm being forced to pretend I'm not a parasite. You know, uh, am I allowed to complain? You know, I feel miserable, but I have no justification for feeling miserable. But that makes it even worse. So, in a way, this is why I call it spiritual warfare. 
you're justified in, in, in a different sense of self. You need to assert that. And we need to change people's basic conceptions of what people are and what they're about. Just a couple more questions for you, David. One of the things that you point out is how uh, meaningless work seems to be rewarded and now meaningful work isn't, and that those who are doing yeah. meaning- meaningless work are often uh, politically motivated or encouraged to not be uh, to be people who are opposed to those who are doing meaningful work. Mm-hmm. So uh, why do we reward meaningless work and not meaningful work? And is the point of BS jobs by the boss to divide and conquer? workers to get those who are doing BS jobs to undermine those who are actually doing it and to disempower those who have meaningful work? Well, whether they're doing it intentionally or not, it certainly has that effect. Um, And you can't imagine that they don't notice that and that they're not at least a little bit pleased with it, I would say. Um, Yeah, one of the themes that, that really came up repeatedly is the weird way in which it's not just that the more your work benefits others, the less you're likely to get paid for it. It's that a lot of people actually seem to feel that's right. I mean, they don't feel it's right for them, right? You know, they don't say, well, I, uh, my work is useful and it's only right that I should get paid less than that guy who's just sitting in an office doing nothing all day. They don't say that. But in other ways, they do. When they come to other people's jobs, and I noticed this politically, that um, right-wing populists managed to get people really angry about teachers. And at first, they tried to talk about school administrators, and school administrators actually are causing a lot of the problems in schools. And it didn't take off. No one cared. But then when they said teachers, oh, you know, skyrocketed, like it worked. So they gave up on the administrators. Um, and similarly, uh, auto workers, after the 2008 financial crash. The only people who really had massive economic penalties placed on them, because the bankers still got their bonuses, um, the executives in the various corporations that got bailed out didn't really have to make any sacrifices. Who had to make sacrifices? The guys who were actually making the car, which is insane, because, like, how did they, you know, what did they do? Uh, but they caused this whole campaign about, like, oh, look at these guys, or, you know, they're getting... $25 an hour, but really they're getting 54 if you count the benefits. And of course, you'd do that for any. Right? Um, and they made this whole campaign, which basically said, you know, these guys get to make cars and then they want middle class lifestyles too. These guys get to teach children. There seems to be this idea that if you're doing something which actually benefits society, well, that should be enough. You know, there's this resentment against them. And sometimes it's explicit. People will say, well, we wouldn't want uh, people who are just motivated by money to teach our children, so it's only right that we don't pay teachers too much. <laughs> um, and on the other hand, we do want people who are just motivated by money to do our banking, So apparently. Um, so, so that's okay. Um, so there seems to be this weird resentment of people who do things um, for any reason other than just the money, even if it's that knowledge, that sort of warm feeling that you're contributing in some way to a society. Uh, cars are the quintessential American thing, you know. They are providing us with our national soul, you know, by giving us cars we can drive around in. That's what we are as Americans, you know. Uh, they make our life possible, so should, shouldn't that be rewarded enough? Um, and, and the same thing, you saw this uh, in austerity in Europe. In the U.K., I mean, like, notoriously, the Tories would, like, cheer when they voted down bills to raise uh, salaries 
of nurses and and even cops actually um emergency medical technology i always use examples like you know people you don't have, but if i have an obviously useful job would be like the guy who gives you the information on the train station you know i mean if he wasn't there i'd be in trouble right, right. um I'd miss a lot of trains that's a useful function and um you know, but those guys all got their salaries cut after the 2008 economic crash. The bankers didn't. So the only possible way you can explain this, I mean, you could explain it as power, right? Sure. But why did people keep voting for these guys? Why did people not say that's disgusting and, and, and kick him out? Well, part of it seems to be this idea that, well, if you are a teacher, if you are a, a nurse, you have dedicated your life to helping others. So help out, okay? You know, we're in a national crisis. Somebody needs to cut money. It should be people who are altruistic. And you want, I call it moral envy, that people have this feeling that, you know, it's not discussed in philosophy. As far as I know, there's no actual term for it, so I have to make it up. It's this feeling of resentment of people who try to get, are seen as trying to get recognition for being better than you because they actually are better than you, in the sense of, you know, they hold themselves to a higher moral standard. People say, like, how dare that person want recognition for being harder working and more generous and kind? <laughs> Even though they don't actually demand it, they just act that way. Let's start, since we were talking about that, that disconnection from meaningful work. I mean, uh, Bregman cited uh, Graeber's work on bullshit jobs. and uh, But let's uh, talk about what, what you found in terms of this, this, this idea. And, and this is all premised on the idea that we, we may have uh, within us a predisposition to uh, depression, but that theoretically should not have changed uh over time in terms of the amount of people but there could be environmental factors um that 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 uh, i guess uh, promote this uh innate potential to uh sadly to to flourish uh in this instance yeah. some people everyone knows some people find it easier to put on weight and some people find it harder to put on weight everyone across american society has put on more weight over the last 40 years right, right. a similar thing has happened with depression some people will have will find it easier to become depressed than others but because of changes in the society it's massively exploded so work is a great example i noticed that lots of the people i know who are depressed and anxious, their depression and anxiety focuses around their work. So I started to think, you know, well, what's the evidence for this? Maybe the people I know are unusual. Um, I looked at the, the best research on it. So Gallup, the opinion poll company, did a massive study of how do people feel about their work? It turned out 13% of us, one in 3%, like our work most of the time. 63% of what they called sleep working. You don't like it. You don't hate it. You just kind of get through the day. And 24% of people hate and fear their jobs. I was quite struck by that. That means most of us, in fact, 87% of us don't like the thing we're doing most of the time. And this thing that we don't like doing is spreading over more and more of the day. The average person now answers their first work email at 7.43 a.m. and leaves work at 7.15 p.m. 
I started to ask, could this be having some effect on our mental health? Uh, I learned that there was a, an amazing man who I then went to interview, a, a guy, an Australian social scientist called Professor Michael Marmot, who made a really important breakthrough on this in the 1970s. Professor Marmot discovered the key factor. It's not the only one, but the key factor that causes depression at work. If you go to work tomorrow and you have low or no control over your work, you are much more likely to become depressed and anxious. I think this is related to something that goes deeper than, than, than work, although it's a key part of this. Everyone listening to Majority Report knows that they have natural physical needs. Obviously, you need food, you need water, you need shelter, you need clean air. Over time, you need sex. If I took those things away from you, you'd be in real trouble real fast. But there's equally strong evidence that all human beings have natural psychological needs. You need to feel you belong. You need to feel your life has meaning and purpose. You need to feel that people see you and value you. You need to feel we've got a future that makes sense. And this culture we built is good at lots of things. I had to go to the dentist the other day. I'm glad to be alive in 2019. But we have been getting less and less good at meeting these deep underlying psychological needs. So think about being controlled at work. If, if, if you are controlled all the time, if you're like a robot on a line, you can't construct meaning out of your work. But as human beings, we need to feel that what we're doing with our hours and our days are meaningful, that we're not just drones, that we're not just controlled by somebody else. So at first, I actually misunderstood what Professor Marmot was saying, right? So I thought I thought the implication of all this evidence was, okay, you've got this elite 13% at the top who get to have nice jobs they control. And then everyone else is condemned to this misery. And I thought about my family, right? My grandmother's job was to clean toilets. My dad was a bus driver. My brother is an Uber driver. I thought, wait, are we just saying all these people are condemned to this misery? And Professor Mama explained to me, it's not the work that makes you depressed. It's being controlled at work. And there's a solution for that. So I went to Baltimore to meet a woman called Meredith Keogh. And Meredith used to go to bed every Sunday night, just sick with anxiety. She worked in an office, as Meredith would tell you, it wasn't the worst office job in the world. She wasn't being bullied or harassed or anything, but it was really monotonous. And Meredith couldn't bear the thought this was going to be the next 40 years of her life until she retired. So one day with her husband, Josh, she did this quite bold thing. When people hear this, they're going to think I'm saying you should do this too. They're going to think I can't do this. And they're right. This is an argument for a structural change. So Josh had worked in bike stores in Baltimore since he was a teenager. And, you know, that's insecure, controlled work. You have no rights or very few rights. One day, Josh was sitting there in the bike store with his friends. They're fixing their bikes. And one of them just said, what does our boss actually do? <laughs> they didn't hate their boss. He wasn't a particularly bad boss, but they were like, we seem to fix all the bikes. And this other dude seems to make all the money. So it was such a good deal for us. Josh and his friends decided they were going to sit, and Meredith decided they were going to set up a bike store of their own that worked on a different principle. So the previous place they worked was a corporation. This is a very recent human invention, right? Everyone listening knows how a corporation works. You've got the boss at the top, who's the dictator. You eat, and sometimes they're a nice dictator and sometimes they're Kim Jong-un, but you've got no oversay over that. Sometimes they listen, sometimes they don't. But if you don't obey the dictator, ultimately you're out of the organization, right? They decided they were going to set up a bike store that worked on an older 
American idea. The store they set up, Baltimore Bicycle Works, is a democratic cooperative, right? It's not a corporation. They don't have a boss. Uh, they take the decisions about the business together by voting once every couple of weeks. They share out the profit. Uh, they share out the good tasks and the shitty tasks. So no one gets stuck with the shitty tasks. If anyone wants to change the business, they can try and persuade their colleagues to do it. So no one is like a drone. You've got agency. And one of the things that was so striking to me spending time in Baltimore Bicycle Works was how many people there talked about how they had been depressed and anxious before but we're not depressed and anxious now, which is totally in line with Professor Marmot's findings, right? It's not like they quit their th jobs fixing bikes and went off to become like Beyonce's backing singers, right? They fixed bikes before, they fix bikes now. What's the difference? Now they have control over their work. How many people do you know who are, you know, who are depressed and anxious at the moment, who would feel really differently if they had work that they controlled with their colleagues, where they had a say, where no one got stuck with the shitty tasks all the time. That's a very different way of spending our time. Now, that's a big structural change. There are lots of smaller things I talk about in, in Lost Connections that would deal with depression. But I would argue that move from a society dominated by corporations to every business being a democratic cooperative. And by the way, it's even more economically efficient. A study at Cornell University found that democratic businesses grow on average four times faster that move that shift giving people back control over their work that is an antidepressant anything that reduces depression should be regarded as an antidepressant for some people that will include chemicals but precisely because the causes of depression are much deeper so control and humiliation at work are a big factor um, it's one of the nine causes that i talk about um, you can see because the problem is deeper than our biology the solutions have to be wider than just looking at our biology early in the book you write about the um in the 70s where they had the the checklist for uh, uh reasons for depression and i think one of them was like mourning uh, talk about that dynamic how they, they sort of you know if someone you knew died uh they they were like oh well that's that's not actually you're not you don't have depression because you should be upset yeah. about that but the, then the, so, so this tells you something really profound about right. how we misunderstand pain in this culture so in the 1970s the American Psychiatric Association, the APA, decided they were going to standardize how they diagnose depression and anxiety across the country, which is a good idea. So they drew up, it's kind of simple, they just drew up a checklist of 10 symptoms, kind of obvious things like crying all the time, feeling life is not worth living. And they send them out to doctors all over the US and they say, if your patients show more than five of these 10 symptoms for more than two weeks, diagnose them as mentally ill, do what you can. So doctors start using this. But after a while, they come back and they go, look, we've got a bit of a problem here. If we use this guideline, we're going to have to diagnose every every grieving person as mentally ill because this is how you feel when someone you love dies. And the APA were like, shit, that's not what we meant. So they invent, they added something that became known as the grief loophole. They said, OK, if anyone shows more than five of these 10 symptoms for more than two weeks, they're mentally ill unless someone they love in their family has died in the last year, in which case they're not mentally ill. It's totally normal to feel like that. Don't pathologize them. But of course, that begs the question, well, hang on a minute. So this is a brain disease. This is just a problem in your brain uh, that can just be identified on, on a checklist unless someone you love has died. Why is that the only situation where you're allowed to feel like this without being told you're mentally ill? Why not if you've lost your job? Why not if you've lost your home? Why not if you're stuck in a job you hate for 40 years? Everyone can fill in a, a load of scenarios. But 
that was such an inconvenient, as Dr. Joanne Cassiatore, who's one of the leading experts on this, put it to me, that requires you to look at context. We don't have a mental health system that is designed to look at context. We're designed to just identify things on a checklist. This was such an inconvenient conversation that the APA just got rid of the group grief loophole. So now if your child dies at 10 a.m. and you're still showing all the symptoms of grief at 10.30 a.m., you can be diagnosed as mentally ill. In fact, nearly 10 percent of all grieving parents are diagnosed and drugged in the first 48 hours after their child dies. And as Dr. Cassiatore put it to me, this shows we just don't understand pain, right? Grief is not a mental illness. We grieve because we have loved. This is a necessary human response. And I think it tells us something really interesting and important, that grief and depression have the same symptoms. I think part of what depression is, is grief for your own life not going how it should. It's grief for your own needs not being met. Now, if you are, um, you know, when someone we love dies, we can't fix that, right? We can hold the people who survive. We can honor the memory of the person who's died, but we can't bring back the dead. But when we're grieving for our own lives, we can together, not in this individualistic neoliberal way, but together as citizens, we can change these factors, right? You mentioned our mutual friend, Rutger Bregman, who's a wonderful person who I interviewed for my book, Lost Connections, because he's talked a lot about one of these key antidepressants, right? So we talked about the incredible financial insecurity that has spread across this culture, right? As wealth has been sucked up to the top, right? As Bernie says, the top three richest people in this country have more money than the bottom half of the country, right? Um, the, the, the whatever it is, the six heirs of the Walmart fortune who did nothing to earn their money, their heirs have more than the bottom 100 million Americans. So in Canada, they did an experiment with what we can do about that. In, uh, nine, in the early 1970s, the Canadian government chose genuinely at random a town in, Man in um, Manitoba called Dauphin. And they said to a huge number of people in that town, OK, guys, from now on, we're going to give you a guaranteed minimum income. There is nothing you have to do in return for it. And there's nothing you can do apart from going to prison that means that we'll take it away from you. We just want you to have a good, secure life. It was the equivalent converted into U.S. dollars and converted into today's money of twelve thousand dollars a year. So not so much that you're going to live well, but, you know, you're not going to be homeless if you've got twelve thousand dollars a year. And this was monitored to see what happened. A wonderful person who I interviewed called Dr. Evelyn Forget did the best research on this. Loads of things happened. But to me, the most important is there was a really big fall in mental health problems across the board. Mental health problems that were so severe, people had to be shut away in psychiatric hospitals. That alone fell by 9% in three years, right? Now, in some ways, this is an insight that's a kind of no shit Sherlock insight. Being financially insecure makes you feel terrible and dealing with that financial insecurity makes you feel better. As Dr. Forget puts it to me, a universal basic income is an antidepressant, right? right? But this requires us to expand our concept both of what causes depression and of uh, what an antidepressant is. My argument in Lost Connections is anything that reduces depression should be regarded as an antidepressant, right? And and, and to some degree, right, there is uh, an incentive by uh, forces in society, and I'm not saying that it's a plot, but there is incentives to, you know, 
if you've got a hammer, then everything's a nail. And um, if you're paid to have a hammer, then everything's even, you know, you're, uh, yeah, you're further you're incentivized so right, to see uh, nails. And so there's, you know, there, our, our society is structured in such a way where the incentive uh, is to pathologize uh, these things rather than to in any way say these are things that we as a society can change. Um, I think you put that brilliantly, Sam, because what we've done is we have depoliticized the pain caused by things like neoliberalism, right? So there were changes in the society that that totally understandably and predictably made a lot of people feel a lot worse. And I want to stress that are real biological components, but by telling a story that is primarily or entirely biological, what we did is we depoliticized that pain. We depoliticized that signal. We we actually cut people off from understanding in many cases why this was happening to them and why they felt so bad and from fighting for the bigger solutions, right, for the better solutions. A lot of those people who have been given drugs, which have indeed taken off some of the edge of their pain, uh, but we know from the long-term research of the chemical antidepressants for most people don't solve it. And a lot of those people, what did they need? They needed a democratic workplace. They needed a universal basic income. They needed a ban on advertising that's designed every day to make us feel like shit. There's a whole range of factors. I also talk about more individual things that people can do. But, but if we don't understand what the signal is, we can't respond to the signal in a meaningful way. If you don't have an accurate map, you can't find your way through the territory. And what I'm trying to do in, in Lost Connections, my book Lost Connections, is, expl- is, is redraw the map in line with the best scientific evidence. And this is one of the things that was really surprising to me. This isn't some kooky, you know, fringe left-wing position. This is the position of the leading medical bodies in the world, the World Health Organization, the leading doctors at the United Nations. This isn't some... Uh, this has been well known for a long time. It's just not translated into how we've had our depression and anxiety explained to us. And, and so it's one of the reasons why we're in this disaster. We haven't been told the right story and therefore we can't find the right solutions. So far, we have scientific evidence for nine different causes of depression and anxiety. Two of them are indeed in our biology. Uh, Your genes can make you more sensitive to these problems, though they don't write your destiny. And there are real brain changes that can happen when you become depressed that can make it harder to get out. But most of the factors that have been proven to cause depression and anxiety are not in our biology. They're factors in the way we live. And once you understand them, it opens up a very different set of solutions that should be offered to people alongside the option of chemical antidepressants. For example, if you're lonely, you're more likely to become depressed. If when you go to work, you don't have any control over your job, you've just got to do what you're told, you're more likely to become depressed. If you very rarely get out into the natural world, you're more likely to become depressed. And one thing unites a lot of the causes of depression and anxiety that I learned about, not all of them, but a lot of them. Everyone here knows you've all got natural physical needs, right? Obviously, you need food, you need water, you need shelter, you need clean air. If I took those things away from you, you'd all be in real trouble real fast. But at the same time, every human being has natural psychological needs, 
You need to feel you belong. You need to feel your life has meaning and purpose. You need to feel that people see you and value you. You feel you've got a future that makes sense. And this culture we built is good at lots of things. Many things are better than in the past. I'm glad to be alive today. But we've been getting less and less good at meeting these deep, underlying psychological needs. And it's not the only thing that's going on, but I think it's the key reason why this crisis keeps rising and rising. And I found this really hard to absorb. I really wrestled with the idea of shifting from thinking of my depression as, you know, just a problem in my brain to one with many causes, including many in the way we're living. And it only really began to fall into place for me when one day I went to interview a South African psychiatrist named Dr. Derek Summerfield. He's a great guy. And Dr. Summerfield happened to be in Cambodia in 2001 when they first introduced chemical antidepressants for people in that country. And the local doctors, the Cambodians, had never heard of these drugs, so they were like, what are they? And he explained. And they said to him, oh, we don't need them. We've already got antidepressants. And he was like, what do you mean? He thought they were going to talk about some kind of herbal remedy, like, I don't know, St. John's wort, Jinko biloba, something like that. Instead, they told him a story. There was a farmer in their community who worked in the rice fields. And one day he stood on a landmine left over from the war with the United States and he got his leg blown off. So they gave him an artificial leg and after a while he went back to work in the rice fields. But apparently it's super painful to work underwater when you've got an artificial limb. And I'm guessing it was pretty traumatic to go back and work in the field where he got blown up. The guy started to cry all day. He refused to get out of bed. He developed all the symptoms of classic depression. The Cambodian doctor said, this is when we gave him an antidepressant. And Dr. Summerfield said, what was it? They explained that they went and sat with him. They listened to him. They realized that his pain made sense. It was hard for him to see it in the throes of his depression, but actually it had perfectly understandable causes in his life. One of the doctors talking to the people in the community figured, you know, if we bought this guy a cow, he could become a dairy farmer He wouldn't be in this position that was screwing him up so much he wouldn't have to go and work in the rice fields. So they bought him a cow. Within a couple of weeks, his crying stopped. Within a month, his depression was gone. They said to Dr. Summerfield, so you see, doctor, that cow, that was an antidepressant. That's what you mean, right? (laughs) If you've been raised to think about depression the way I was and most of the people here were, that sounds like a bad joke, right? I went to my doctor for an antidepressant. She gave me a cow. But... (laughs) But what those Cambodian doctors knew intuitively, based on this individual unscientific anecdote, is what the leading medical body in the world, the World Health Organization, has been trying to tell us for years, based on the best scientific evidence. If you're depressed, if you're anxious, you're not weak, you're not crazy, you're not, in the main, a machine with broken parts. You're a human being with unmet needs. And it's just as important to think here about what those Cambodian doctors and the World Health Organization are not saying. They did not say to this farmer, hey, buddy, you need to pull yourself together. It's your job to figure out and fix this problem on your own. On the contrary, what they said is, we're here as a group to pull together with you. So together, we can figure out and fix this problem. This is what every depressed person needs, and it's what every depressed person deserves. 
We are the loneliest society in human history. There was a recent study that asked Americans, do you feel like you're no longer close to anyone? And 39% of people said that described them no longer close to anyone. In the international measurements of loneliness, Britain and the rest of Europe are just behind the US in case anyone here is feeling smug. And (laughs) I spent a lot of time discussing this with the leading expert in the world on loneliness, an incredible man named Professor John Cassiopo, who was at Chicago. And I thought a lot about one question his work poses to us. So Professor Cassiopo asked, why do we exist? Why are we here? Why are we alive? One key reason is that our ancestors on the savannas of Africa were really good at one thing. They weren't bigger than the animals they took down a lot of the time. They weren't faster than the animals they took down a lot of the time. But they were much better at banding together into groups and cooperating. This was our superpower as a species. We band together. Just like bees evolved to live in a hive, humans evolved to live in a tribe. And we are the first humans ever to disband our tribes and it is making us feel awful. But it doesn't have to be this way. One of the heroes in my book, and in fact in my life, is a doctor named Sam Everington. He's a general practitioner in a poor part of East London where I lived for many years. And Sam was really uncomfortable because he had loads of patients coming to him with terrible depression and anxiety. And like me, he's not opposed to chemical antidepressants. He thinks they give some relief to some people. But he could see two things. Firstly, his patients were depressed and anxious a lot of the time for totally understandable reasons, like loneliness. And secondly, although the drugs were giving some relief to some people, for many people they didn't solve the problem, the underlying problem. So one day Sam decided to pioneer a different approach. A woman came to his centre, his medical centre, called Lisa Cunningham. I got to know Lisa later. And Lisa had been shut away in her home with crippling depression and anxiety for seven years. And when she came to Sam's centre, she was told, don't worry, We'll carry on giving you these drugs, but we're also going to prescribe something else. We're going to prescribe for you to come here to this center twice a week to meet with a group of other depressed and anxious people, not to talk about how miserable you are, but to figure out something meaningful you can all do together so you won't be lonely and you won't feel like life is pointless. The first time this group met, Lisa literally started vomiting with anxiety. It was so overwhelming for her. But... People rubbed her back. The group started talking. They were like, what what could we do? These are inner city East London people like me. They didn't know anything about gardening. They were like, why don't we learn gardening? There was an area behind the doctor's offices that was just like scrubland. They were like, why don't we make this into a garden? So they started to take books out of the library. They started to watch YouTube clips. They started to get their fingers in the soil. They started to learn the rhythms of the seasons. There's a lot of evidence that exposure to the natural world is a really powerful antidepressant. But they started to do something even more important. They started to form a tribe. They started to form a group. They started to care about each other. If one of them didn't show up, the others would go looking for them, say, hey, you okay? Help them figure out what was troubling them that day. The way Lisa put it to me, as the garden began to bloom, we began to bloom. This approach is called social prescribing. It's spreading all over Europe. And there's a small but growing body of evidence suggesting it can produce real and meaningful falls in depression and anxiety. And one day I remember standing in the garden that Lisa and her once depressed friends had built. It's a really beautiful garden. And having this thought, it's kind of, it's very much inspired by a guy called Professor Hugh Mackay in Australia. I was thinking, you know, so often, 
When people feel down in this culture, what we say to them, I'm sure everyone here said it, I have, is we say, oh, you just, you just need to be you, be yourself. And I realized actually what we should say to people is, don't be you. Don't be yourself. Be us. Be we. Be part of a group. But the, the, the solution to these problems does not lie in drawing more and more on your resources as an isolated individual. That's partly what got us into this crisis. It lies on reconnecting with something bigger than you. And, and that really connects to one of the other causes of depression and anxiety that I wanted to talk to you about. So everyone knows junk food has taken over our diets and made us physically sick. I don't say that with any sense of superiority. I literally came to give this talk from McDonald's. But <laughs> I saw all of you eating that healthy Ted breakfast. I was like, no way. Um, but, but, but just like junk food has taken over our diets and made us physically sick, a kind of junk values have taken over our minds and made us mentally sick. For thousands of years, philosophers have said, if you think life is about money and status and showing off, you're going to feel like crap, right? That's not an exact quote from Schopenhauer, but that is the gist of what he said, right? But weirdly, hardly anyone had scientifically investigated this until a truly extraordinary person I got to know named Professor Tim Kasser, who's at Knox College in Illinois. And he's been researching this for about 30 years now. And his research suggests several really important things. Firstly, the more you believe you can buy and display your way out of sadness and into a good life, the more likely you are to become depressed and anxious. And secondly, as a society, we have become much more driven by these beliefs. All throughout my lifetime, under the weight of advertising and Instagram and everything like them, and as I thought about this, I realized it's like we've all been fed since birth a kind of KFC for the soul. <laughs> we've been trained to look for happiness in all the wrong places. And just like junk food doesn't meet your nutritional needs and actually makes you feel terrible, junk values don't meet your psychological needs. And they take you away from a good life. But when I first spent time with Professor Castro and I was learning all this, I felt a really uh, weird mixture of emotions. Because on the one hand, I found this really challenging. I could see how often in my own life, when I felt down, I tried to remedy it with some kind of show-offy, grand, external solution. And I could see why that did not work well for me. But I also thought, isn't this kind of obvious? Isn't this almost like banal, right? If I said to everyone here, none of you are going to lie on your deathbed and think about all the shoes you bought and all the retweets you got, Right? You're going to think about moments of love and meaning and connection in your life. I think that seems almost like a cliche, but I kept talking to Professor Kasser and saying, you know, wh why, why, why am I feeling this strange doubleness? And he said, well, at some level, we all know these things, but in this culture, we don't live by them. We know them so well, they become cliches, but we don't live by them. And I kept asking, well, why? Why would that be? Why would we know something so profound but not live by it? And after a while, Professor Kasser said to me, because we live in a machine that is designed to get us to neglect what is important about life. I had to really think about that, because we live in a machine that is designed to get us to neglect what is important about life. And Professor Kasser wanted to figure out if we can disrupt that machine. He's done loads of research into this. I'll tell you about one example, and I really urge everyone here to try this with their friends and their family. So with a guy called Nathan Dungan, he got a group of teenagers and adults to come together for a series of sessions over a, series, over a period of time to meet up. And part of the point of the group was to get people to think about 
a moment in their life they have actually found meaning and purpose. For different people, it was different things. Some people, it was playing music, writing, helping someone. I'm sure everyone here can picture something, right? And part of the point of the group was to get people to ask, okay, how could you dedicate more of your life to pursuing these moments of meaning and purpose and less to, I don't know, buying crap you don't need, putting it on social media and trying to get people to go, OMG, so jealous, right? And what they found was just having these meetings, it was like a kind of Alcoholics Anonymous for consumerism, right? Just getting people to have these meetings, articulate these values, determine to act on them and check in with each other led to a marked shift in people's values. It took them away from this hurricane of depression-generating messages, training us to seek happiness in the wrong places, and towards more meaningful and nourishing values that lift us out of depression. But with all the solutions that I saw and have written about, and many I can't talk about here, I kept thinking, you know, why did it take me so long to see these insights, right? Because when you explain them to people, I mean, some of them are more complicated, but not all. And when you explain this to people, it's not like rocket science, right? At some level, we already know these things. Why, why do we find it so hard to understand? I think there's many reasons. But I think one reason is that we have to change our understanding of what depression and anxiety actually are. There are very real biological contributions to depression and anxiety. But if we allow the biology to become the whole picture, as I did for so long, as I would argue our culture has done pretty much for most of my life, what we're implicitly saying to people is, and this isn't anyone's intention, but what we're implicitly saying to people is, your pain doesn't mean anything. It's just a malfunction. It's like a, a glitch in a computer program. It's just a, a wiring problem in your head. But I was only able to start changing my life when I realized your depression is not a malfunction. It's a signal. Your depression is a signal. It's telling you something. We feel this way for reasons, and they can be hard to see in the throes of depression. I understand that really well from personal experience. But with the right help, we can understand these problems and we can fix these problems together. But to do that, the very first step is we have to stop insulting these signals by saying they're a sign of weakness or madness or purely biological except for a tiny number of people. We need to start listening to these signals because they're telling us something we really need to hear. It's only when we truly listen to these signals and we honor these signals and respect these signals that we're going to begin to see the liberating, nourishing, deeper solutions, the cows that are waiting all around us. Thanks for listening to another throwback episode plucked from the archives to give you context for today. 
For more like this, check the feed as this is a weekly feature of the show that's in addition to all of our new episodes. As always, keep the comments coming in. You can leave a voicemail or text at 202-999-3991 or email me to j at bestofleft.com. These episodes are remastered and produced by Dion Clark, Aaron Clayton, and myself. We also produce funny and informative bonus episodes along with Amanda Hoffman as thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships to the show. If you get value out of the show, we'd appreciate your support at bestofleft.com slash support through our Patreon page or from right inside the Apple Podcasts app. And if you want to continue the discussion, join our Discord community. There's a link to join in the show notes. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, with new episodes coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Thank you.